Welcome back to the Healthy Moms Podcast with Katie from wellnessmama.com. Today, we again join Katie as she talks with Dr. Isabella Wentz, a pharmacist and autoimmune thyroid expert who helps people determine their root cause of thyroid disease. In this episode, they will delve into the diet and lifestyle interventions that can affect thyroid disease and also help us know how to optimize these factors for better thyroid health. Isabella has offered her comprehensive Overcoming Thyroid Fatigue. It's a guide to help you discover your own root causes. To get the bonus material from this episode, join our community at wellnessmama.com forward slash podcast. Now, let's join Katie as she and Dr. Isabella discuss ways to reverse thyroid disease with diet and lifestyle interventions. We've talked about, obviously, what thyroid disease is and the different forms it can take and the symptoms and and how to find a doctor to get diagnosed. At this point, I'd love to switch gears and focus on the positive a little bit more and look at things that can potentially help. And so one question I had from a reader um, is, when is medication needed for thyroid disease and and how do you know? Um, And then the follow-up to that would be, and what type is typically best to take for the different forms of thyroid disease? Mm-hmm. Oh, those are great questions. And yeah, and I love focusing on solutions because there's so many different things that people can do to get themselves better. So feeling better is possible and some people can even get their condition into remission. So um, starting off with medications, medications can make a really, really big difference in how a person feels. Um, generally, I would say if somebody is having any thyroid symptoms with Hashimoto's, they've been diagnosed with Hashimoto's and they have any thyroid symptoms. And if they're TSH is going to be elevated, that would be a good indication to start on medications. If their TSH is still within normal limits, um, but they have Hashimoto's, that's kind of a controversial time for, for most doctors. They'll say, some doctors will say, well, let's just wait and watch. Other doctors will say, hey, let's try a medication now. Um, the advantage of trying the medication is going to be helpful in addressing some of the symptoms so if you are already, even if your TSH is normal, you still may ha- might have some of these symptoms like the fatigue and the trouble with weight. And so taking the medication can help. And it's also been found that taking medication can actually reduce the autoimmune attack on the thyroid gland. It sort of acts as a protective um, layer for, for the thyroid because what it does is it kind of gets, takes the pressure off the thyroid to um, to work. <laughs> so the thyroid doesn't have to convert as much iodine and the thyroid doesn't have to produce as much thyroid hormone. And that kind of, um, you know, less lowers the TSH and that kind of lowers all of these um, reactive oxygen species that are produced in the thyroid gland. And the immune system is not as attracted to the thyroid gland then. So we'll usually see when somebody starts on a thyroid medication, their thyroid antibodies will go down. And um, for those of you guys listening, Thyroid antibodies, you know, the higher they are, the more aggressive the the autoimmune attack is thought to be on the thyroid. So taking medications can potentially slow down the progression of the condition and um, prevent further damage of the thyroid gland. That makes so much sense. And I know there are a lot of people, uh, and I would even consider myself in this category, who don't like to take medication uh, superfluously or without really a good cause. Um, And I actually am on 
a pretty low dose of WP Throid, which is a natural thyroid replacement. Um, but can you talk about how th- those particular type of medicines are a little bit different than other type of medications in that they're not, um, th- like they're actually filling a role in the body. They're not, cause I think some people can be a little afraid of taking any kind of medication and especially being stuck on a medication. Um, can you talk about how thyroid medications work? Yeah, absolutely. And so this is a very, very important point because, you know, as a pharmacist, I like to think of, of medications and um, as having different types of mechanisms of action. And, and of course, one of my roles was to actually get people off of medications because medications can have a lot of adverse drug reactions. And I'm very, very passionate about appropriate use of medications. So um, with respect to thyroid hormones, I consider them to be very, very clean medications. And what I mean by that is, you know, there are clean medications that work on the receptors they're supposed to do the job that they're supposed to do in the body. And then there are dirty drugs that basically will bind all kinds of different receptors. And then you end up with a ton of different side effects and unwanted types of things happening where, you know, you're trying to achieve one thing and another thing happens that you don't want to have like a, you know, headaches or, or, you know, weird rashes or any kinds of weird side effects. And so the reason why thyroid medications are clean and why they are so, um, you know, not as likely to produce side effects unless, of course, they're overdosed or underdosed is because they're the exact same chemical structure as our naturally occurring thyroid hormones. So the there are a few different ones out there. So there's T4, which is um, levothyroxine synthroid is the brand name of that, and that was the number one prescribed drug in all of America in 2014, believe it or not. That is a synthetic version of one of the main thyroid hormones. And a lot of doctors will prescribe this medication for most patients. And, you know, some people will do very, very well on this drug, and they'll say, okay, it's helped a lot of my symptoms, and I feel great. Um, and, And studies and doctors will say that majority of people do well on this. You know, in my experience um, and just with the clients that I've worked with, it seems to be the opposite, that most people don't do well with this type of medication. And, of, of course, I am probably biased because people who are doing just fine on their medications are probably not going to come and ask me questions. But um, the other types of medications that can be helpful are going to be T4, T3-containing medications, so like the one that you're on. Um, you know, and nature thyroid as well as armor thyroid are going to be options and also compounded T4, T3 medications. And so T3 is the other main active thyroid hormone, and it's actually the more active thyroid hormone. So it is four times more active than the T4. And, um, you know, under normal circumstances, when everything is going perfectly, a person basically will convert as much of the T4 to T3 as they need. Um, and so theoretically, T4 medications like the Synthroid should be, should be just fine for people because they should be able to convert them to T3, which is kind of the more active hormone, which helps us to grow hair, lose weight, um, you know, build up our metaza- metabolism, make us warm. But um, that doesn't always happen. And, and sometimes it's due to, you know, different toxins or nutrient deficiencies or even stress that the conversion doesn't happen properly. So I always, um, you know, whenever a person is not feeling their best on thyroid medications, I would recommend doing a T4, T3 containing medication like the Nature Thyroid, a WP Thyroid, or Armour Thyroid. The other neat thing about these medications is is they're actually um, bioidentical. So they're going to be derived from the thyroid glands of um, usually pigs. 
And the pigs have very similar thyroid hormones to the ones that are identical thyroid hormones to the ones that we have. So um, basically, you know, what we're doing with, with thyroid medications is giving ourselves the very same hormone our body can no longer make. Long story short, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, I feel like that's been a struggle for a lot of my readers and a question I'm not obviously qualified to answer. So I'm so glad that you explained that in depth. I know a lot of people personally who are on Synthroid and who aren't seeing the kind of the, the results they were hoping for, and they're still struggling with some symptoms. And that makes so much sense that if they're struggling with that conversion to T3, um, they would still be potentially having a lot of those issues. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the, the other thing that's um, a bit concerning to me, and I know that AbbVie, the drug company is trying to work on resolving this issue, but there were some um, reports of Synthroid being cross-contaminated with gluten. And so we know that autoimmune conditions often come in pairs or in threes. So people with Hashimoto's are going to be more likely to have celiac disease. And I've actually found that most people with Hashimoto's, even if they don't have celiac disease, you know, 5% of them might, the rest are very, very gluten sensitive. And so when they take the Synthroid, they may actually be dosing themselves with gluten, and that can be contributing to additional symptoms um, for people. Though, though Synthroid doesn't have gluten in ingredients, it, there have been some cross-contamination issues. That's really good to know. So I had a reader, January, ask me, is it possible to overcome thyroid problems without taking medication? If, say, a person does have Hashimoto's or even just hypothyroidism, can they, is that something they can handle without medication? You know, in some cases, people can. I would say I would give yourself, if you were really gung-ho about doing a natural approach, so some people who had both celiac disease and Hashimoto's, about 20% of them on a gluten-free diet within three to six months, they were able to reverse subclinical hypothyroidism, which means that they kind of had the beginning stages of, um, you know, a sluggish thyroid and they were able to normalize their thyroid function. Um, after the trigger, which in their case was gluten, was was removed, and there was no longer um, that trigger that was causing their immune system to attack their thyroid gland. So in some cases, you know, that would be something that you can try. Um, you know, my recommendation, though, for people is if, if you're suffering with symptoms, not to martyr yourself for a cause. Um, you know, I, a lot of times people will say like, oh, I only want to do things naturally or natural medicine don't work, doesn't work or you know, I won't do this or I won't do that or I won't change my diet or or I, I'll only do things with diet. And I just encourage everybody to really keep an open mind and practice self-compassion. Be kind to yourself. If you are experiencing a lot of symptoms, then, you know, and if you could benefit from a medication, don't, you know, martyr yourself for a cause of, you know, wanting to do things medication free. Yeah, that's a great point. And I'm curious if you have any insight into Um, Because I've seen a lot of that research as well, as far as the gluten connection for those with thyroid disease. Um, But I often hear people say, and I've wondered this as well, you know, years ago, people ate gluten as much as they do now, or um, sometimes even more potentially, since there's more awareness about it. And we didn't have these rates of thyroid disease, or perhaps we did, and we didn't know about them. Um, Do you have any insight as to why this seems to be kind of a growing problem right now? You know, a few reasons. Um, so one of the one of the ways that um, you know breads were prepared back in the day was through a fermentation sourdough process that actually broke down a lot of gluten. So that could be potentially you know back in the day we were not eating as much gluten as we are now. Um, I know through 
um, just trying to get more people fed. And it, things are always done for good intentions, right? So the gluten content in bread has increased. And then, you know, the use of, unfortunately, genetically modified crops, which seem to be, you know, of course, people or scientists were saying, oh, yay, let's feed the masses and let's, you know, genetically modify these crops so that they are resistant to different bugs and things. Um, those are some potential reasons why gluten may be more anagenic now. So it may not be recognized as the same protein that we used to have or um, and definitely higher higher awareness is, is another thing. So, um, and you know, whenever a person is in a more toxic environment, they're going to be more likely to react to different things too. So just our overall society being more toxic has been implicated in higher Hashimoto's rates. And, and we do see trends with that happening. So they've looked at you know, the blood samples of people who were frozen, uh, pe- people were not frozen, the blood, their blood samples were frozen from, you know, 20 years ago, and they just took recent blood samples, and they looked at the rates of Hashimoto's and people from 20 years ago, and people from now, and we definitely have seen an up um, increased trend in those higher rates, and potentially, you know, toxins, and potentially a uh, change in how our food is processed and created. Gotcha. So kind of that like perfect storm that you talked about, um, we're kind of almost creating it environmentally as a society between adding the excess iodine and, and probably not very much awareness about selenium and then a, a change in our processed food and food being less um, cultured and less traditionally prepared than it used to be along with our high stress lifestyle. That makes so much sense that we're kind of creating that perfect storm that both you and I had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then other things come into play too. So not getting, not eating fermented foods, not having enough vitamin D on board. So fermented foods, we used to eat them and they would contribute to, you know, giving us a very diverse microbiome. The microbiome has been connected with autoimmune disease. And then, um, you know, just, just a lot of vitamin D deficiency has also been implicated in autoimmune thyroid disease. So we're not spending as much time outdoors, um, sunbathing as we used to, or, or, you know, like running around foraging for, for food. So it, it just, it's really, you know, unfortunately, it's really hard to isolate one thing. It just some, seems to be kind of a collection of different things that can contribute. And, you know, I spend a lot of time looking at medical journals and reviewing different studies. And there's so many different things that can trigger um, Hashimoto's. There's medications, there's different toxins, there's different foods, there's different infections, and definitely stress um, is, is a contributor to that as well. Yeah, that makes so much sense. So you mentioned gluten, which, um, I feel like there is a lot more awareness lately, especially in sort of health circles of people with thyroid disease. That's something that comes up in the research, but are there other dietary triggers, um, that can contribute or that are especially problematic for people who may have thyroid disease? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm really, really glad that gluten is getting so much awareness and I'm very, very happy to see that. And, I've had a lot of people who submitted success stories through my website after going gluten-free and getting into Hashimoto's remission feeling so much better. It just makes me so happy that this kind of awareness is out there. But, you know, other foods can be triggering as well. The two biggest ones are going to be dairy and soy. So the main proteins in dairy are going to be casein and whey. And usually it's the casein protein that seems to be sensitizing for people with Hashimoto's and, you know, lactose is people often will say, oh, okay, so you have um, an intolerance to dairy. Can you just have milk with lactate in it or, you know, lactose-free milk? 
But, you know, actually the part of the dairy that people are sensitive to is going to be the casein. So that's a dairy protein. Um, I have seen a lot of people, I would say probably 70 to 80% of people with Hashimoto's are going to be dairy sensitive and they'll have improved outcomes once they get off of dairy. I had one person who actually um, just went dairy-free. That was her only intervention, and she was able to get into remission from Hashimoto's. So that's almost as an important trigger as gluten. With my experience and uh, surveying my readers, about 88% felt felt that they were better off gluten-free. With dairy, it's somewhere between 70 and 80%. Wow. Soy is another interesting kind of um, food that is often commonly reactive in people with Hashimoto's. And I've seen people who get off of soy, though they may not have a lot of symptoms of soy intolerance, their thyroid antibodies do start reducing, indicating that the immune system attack is becoming less aggressive. That's really fascinating. And So another thing you mentioned in relation to, I think part of your own story was the role of gut health. And this is another topic that I feel like is awesome right now because we're learning so much about it so quickly. And um, there are a lot of studies right now that seem to be coming out about the role of gut health. But how does this play into thyroid disease? Because you hear terms like leaky gut and gut permeability and different things related to digestive health. But how does that play a role in how someone's thyroid may work? You know, it's actually interesting because the thyroid gland is part of our, um, you know, the same tissues that were started off where the thyroid and the tongue, so they come from similar tissue. So you can say that um, the thyroid gland is actually derived from our from our gut. <laughs> and um, so that's one interesting connection here. But really the main connection would be with respect to the three-legged theory of autoimmunity, This was a theory that was recently um, explored and and proved by Dr. Alessio Fasano, who's a gastroenterologist that specializes in autoimmunity and celiac disease. And he found that every person with a autoimmune condition, be it Hashimoto's, be it lupus or MS, had three things that needed to be present in order for the autoimmune condition to develop. So the person had um, obviously the right genetic predisposition to develop the condition They also had some sort of a trigger that brought on the condition. So we talked a little bit about the different triggers out there. And then the third piece of the puzzle is that they also had intestinal permeability or leaky gut. And all three of those things needed to be present in order for the autoimmune condition to manifest or to develop. Um, So if you had a genetically predisposed person who only had the trigger but not the gut permeability, they would not develop autoimmune condition. And, you know, if they only had the gut permeability but not the trigger, they would also not develop a gut condition. And so, you know, that got that was really, really exciting for prevention um, when he first kind of came across this. But later on, he also came across something else is that if you are able to either remove the trigger or remove the intestinal permeability, the autoimmune condition would go into remission. So, you know, obviously we can't change our genes. We're always going to have these genetic predispositions that we have, but we can definitely change how the genes are expressed. And that's through manipulating our triggers, be they nutrient deficiencies or foods or, you know, infections. And then we can also look at um, healing our gut, which is where the intestinal permeability comes into play. So, so there's a few different reasons for intestinal permeability. And, you know, whenever I work with people and what I like to write about is really looking at all of the potential root causes of the intestinal permeability and trying to 
figure them out and address them so that we can get a person, um, you know, feeling better and potentially into remission. That's what I love so much about your approach and especially your book, which delves into the root causes so much, is that even though your background is more in the conventional medicine as a pharmacist, um, you've really learned so much is delving into the root causes and not just treating with medicine. And I love that the two-prong approach that you have seems so effective for so many people. Um, so what about the ad- adrenal health? Because you also mentioned that sometimes symptoms can look like thyroid disease, but they're actually adrenal related. Um, but I've also seen that you've written about how adrenal health can impact thyroid health. Can you talk about that connection too? Yeah, absolutely. So there's like basically five things, nine main things that are going to be happening in Hashimoto's that are going to be contributing. They're going to be nutrient depletions, food sensitivities, poor stress response, which is where the adrenals come in, impaired ability to get to- to get rid of toxins, um, infections, which are oftentimes going to be in the gut. And so adrenals are two little glands that sit on top of our kidneys and they're responsible for producing our stress hormones. And they, you know, they're very closely um, in, in synergy and work in sync with our thyroid glands. So a lot of times when you have one Um, you know, adrenal dysfunction, you'll have thyroid dysfunction and vice versa. And, you know, adrenal depletions and dysfunctions in adrenals oftentimes are going to precede autoimmune disease. So what will happen a lot of times is people will experience a very, very stressful time and release a lot of stress hormones. And then the body can't keep up with the stress hormone production and kind of starts becoming low in these stress hormones like the cortisol. Um, Once we are low in cortisol, that makes us susceptible to different types of infections. And then a person will often, at that point, develop some sort of a gut infection. And that's kind of the triggering and starting point of the intestinal permeability, which can then lead to autoimmune conditions. Um, With, you know, the other ways that the adrenals and thyroid work and feedback with one another is whenever there's excess um, thyroid hormones, the body will try to slow things down and they'll produce um, reverse T3 instead of the active T3 so that to um, basically not to activate the thyroid receptors, but just to take up the thyroid receptors and prevent a person from becoming hyperthyroid. And the adrenals play a very, very important role in making sure that we are keeping with homeostasis. And, you know, under normal conditions, the two work very, very well together But in terms of, you know, autoimmunity and thyroid dysfunction, you'll often see that both adrenals and thyroid gland are going to be impacted. So majority of my clients who didn't get better with, you know, just maybe some nutrition or medications will find that they have some degree of adrenal fatigue or adrenal dysfunction where they're not producing enough of these stress hormones and that's dragging their thyroid um, hormone production down as well. Wow. So it's really such a vicious cycle that any of those factors, whether it's intestinal permeability or adrenal issues, um, or even like stress or diet, they can all trigger that cascade that affects everything. And I feel like hopefully that's going to become the future of medicine is looking at all of those factors in a holistic way. And I feel like there are people like you who are leading that charge and looking at root causes and looking at all the factors. But I think that's so hopeful what you said that even just if you can fix one of those legs, whether it be the intestinal permeability or the trigger, that that can help put a condition in remission, even if you still have, like you said, that genetic predisposition or 
maybe you still have a trigger, but you don't have the intestinal issue or vice versa. So I feel like that's really hopeful because sometimes the conversation about thyroid problems can get kind of gloomy. Um, but it's good to hear that there are, like, there are people who are getting it in remission and that's a definite possibility that's backed by the research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes it's an infection that triggers the condition. So there's um, research supporting H. pylori infection being a common thing in Hashimoto's. So treating that infection, I've seen some people get into remission from that. Um, a new infection that's just been recently described in the literature that I've seen for a few years now is blastocystis hominis. It's a protozoan parasite, and that can actually contribute to leaky gut in the person. And I've seen, you know, whenever we treat that infection in people, that their um, gut permeability will reduce, their food sensitivities will reduce, and their thyroid antibodies will start declining. That's fascinating. So I'd love to get your take on a couple of myths that seem to be related to thyroid disease as well, or at least maybe they have truth to them, but they're very often repeated. In fact, I'll even have people come leave comments on my blog to tell me about them quite often. So the first one is that if you have any kind of thyroid problem, you should absolutely not eat cruciferous vegetables because they have compounds that attack the thyroid. And I know that you've written about this and there seems to be a lot of back and forth, but can you clarify that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good one, Katie. And, and those poor, you know, cruciferous vegetables, they're so good. They're so tasty, but they get this bad rap, don't they? <laughs> they do. Yeah. Um, so basically there's, um, a word that people should be familiar with. It's goiterogen. And this is kind of an old word and it's not the best descriptive word in the world because what it basically means is something that interferes with thyroid function. And there's a few different mechanisms for interfering with thyroid function. So we talked about soy and how people with Hashimoto's and thyroid conditions should avoid it. So soy is, um, a goiterogen because it interferes with the thyroid peroxidase enzyme, which you know, if you guys remember, that's that's the enzyme that's usually a target for the autoimmune attack. And so um, soy can lead to increased amounts of thyroid antibodies. So so that's a goiterogen that we definitely don't recommend. Um, the cruciferous vegetables, they are listed as goiterogens because they can block iodine absorption into the thyroid gland. Now, back in the day when primary cause of hypothyroidism was due to iodine deficiency, you know, that can potentially exacerbate iodine deficiency. If you were eating, you know, all these vegetables, all these, you know, big, big heads of cabbage and, and lots of kale, that could potentially prevent any tiny traces of iodine to get into your thyroid gland. And that's kind of how the, um, how that myth got started. But for people with Hashimoto's, you know, generally that's not going to be an iodine deficiency condition. So studies, time and time again, have shown that the rates of Hashimoto's increase with um, iodine. So the higher rates of iodine you have, the the more likely you are to develop Hashimoto's if you are genetically predisposed to get that. So, um, you know, looking at, at goiterogens from the respect of the broccoli and the crucifers, those are not going to play a role in Hashimoto's. If anything, they're going to be helpful for detoxifications because they have a lot of great sulfur-based compounds that help us detoxify. And, and we talked about how detoxification is, is a system that's often impaired in Hashimoto's. So definitely you can eat your broccoli, you can eat your cabbage. Um, small percentage of people with Hashimoto's, I would say less than 10, may be iodine deficient or may not be able to tolerate the cruciferous vegetables in their raw state. Um, and that can be due to, you know, because of the iodine blocking reasons or because, um, you know, they just cannot tolerate raw vegetables. And in that 
um, you know, in that instance, I would recommend steaming them or um, fermenting them. Fermentation process and steaming will actually reduce the um, iodine blocking components of of these vegetables. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of one of those myths that has a little bit of truth in it. But hopefully we've clarified that and more people will buy um, more broccoli. Exactly. So basically, unless you have a very specifically diagnosed iodine deficiency that you're working on correcting, there's no reason to avoid them at all. Um, But so you've mentioned um, the iodine thing quite a bit. And one reader, Savannah, asked, is iodine okay if you combine it with selenium properly? Because a lot of the research, at least that I've read, um, and I'm not a doctor, obviously, but it seems to say that it's most dangerous when it's out of balance with selenium. So she wanted to know if you combine it with selenium in proper ratios, is it okay? And if so, how much to take of each one? That's a really great question. And, you know, that is uh, a big thing in the research is basically iodine and selenium play very well together. And when you don't have enough of one, you can have, uh, you know, problems with the other. So, so, you know, definitely we talked about that pathway whenever thyroid hormones are produced um, from, you know, iodine gets converted and hydrogen peroxide is a byproduct of that, and that can be damaging, where selenium actually makes specific proteins that help detoxify this hydrogen peroxide. So having enough selenium on board can be protective of higher doses of iodine. And so this, this is, can be very, very hopeful. But at the same time, unfortunately, clinically, I haven't seen that in everybody. So some advocates of iodine will say, you know, you can take iodine as long as you take selenium. And in some cases, this can help, but not in every case. That makes sense. So maybe if someone suspects that they have, over the course of their life, gotten too much iodine, they could work with their practitioner to take selenium to see if that helped or to maybe get it from food. I know things like Brazil nuts are supposed to be pretty high in selenium um, and just see if maybe raising their level slightly does help. But that wouldn't necessarily mean that as long as you're taking selenium, it's fine to just consume as much iodine as you want. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as we talked about, iodine seems to be a narrow therapeutic index, our Goldilocks nutrient. So when you have two dosages of it too high, that can be potentially irritating to the thyroid and Hashimoto's. And studies have looked at what dosages were tolerated by people with Hashimoto's. And up to 250 micrograms is generally going to be well tolerated. Um, some people may even be sensitive to that. So generally, I'll tell you know women, especially of childbearing age, that usually the amounts that are found in multivitamins or prenatal vitamins of iodine are going to be fine, like the 150 micrograms, and the multis will usually have a selenium in there as well. Um, But I get concerned when people start doing those really high dosages of iodine in the milligrams, which is like a thousand times more than a microgram, Mm -hmm. um, because I've seen, unfortunately, some people who would have their TSH go to like 100, their T4 go to zero and their thyroid antibodies go in the thousand range with the high dosages of iodine, which can actually accelerate the thyroid tissue damage. Um, With selenium, that seems to be something that is very, very well tolerated by most people with Hashimoto's and um, Graves' disease, as well as women who want to prevent postpartum thyroiditis if they're at risk for Hashimoto's. Um, And the dosage of that seems to be 200 micrograms per day of selenium methionine. That's been the most well-studied dose. And um, it's been found to reduce thyroid antibodies, reduce anxiety, and then reduce the incidence of postpartum thyroiditis and postpartum thyroid abnormalities. So um, that's something that I definitely recommend for people to keep in balance. And 
you know, talk to their practitioners if they have any questions. But generally, um, the dosages and multivitamins of iodine should be okay for many people with Hashimoto, even with Hashimoto's. And then with the selenium supplement, I generally recommend doing 200 micrograms a day up to 400 micrograms a day. Um, you don't want to go above 800 of the selenium because it's also one of those Goldilocks nutrients. So anything above 800 may be toxic. So, um, you know, whenever you're working with nutrients, you want to be mindful of, of what effect they can have on your body and having the right balance of them. Yeah, absolutely. So to kind of recap everything we just talked about as far as the positive things that can start helping, even if someone is having trouble maybe finding a practitioner they can work with, from what you said, there are things they can absolutely do that are in their control. Like they could try an elimination diet with some of those triggers and see if that makes a difference, or they could look at gut health and start doing some of the things that can help improve gut health and see if that makes a difference. So even I feel like that's such a positive step, even someone who maybe can't find the medical help that they're looking for, they, they, there's the things they can start trying in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Making sure that they're eating a nutrient dense diet free of any reactive foods is one of the first steps that people can take and start feeling much better. Um, I also surveyed my clients and patients and readers on what things help the most. So, um, you know, we talk about removing inflammatory foods is works wonders. So does of removing inflammatory people. So making sure that you're, you're not stressed out and you're not spending time with people that stress you out um, doing things you love, all those things are going to be very, very helpful. As we know, stress contributes to just about every condition, especially thyroid conditions. Exactly. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Healthy Moms podcast. To get the bonus from the episode, as well as a content library of free health resources, join the community at wellnessmama.com forward slash podcast.